0: To the Gazette's fact checker podcast, we've been on a little hiatus after the election in November. Um, things got a, a little quieter, I guess, on the um, the conversation front for us. Things for us to fact check. We ran out of ads, you know. There were fewer speeches, that kind of thing. But I would say things have been anything but quiet um, on the political front, and um, we're back. We're back with you today. Um, I'm Aaron Jordan. I'm the Gazette's investigative reporter. I'm Michaela Ram. I'm the Gazette's healthcare reporter.
1: I'm John Seppi I'm the Gazette's business reporter.
2: I'm Marissa Payne. I'm the Gazette's Cedar Rapids government
0: reporter.
1: And that's the team. So this week we have a couple of checks we
0: wanted to talk with you about. Um, the first one is a team check we did of the of Governor Kim Reynolds' condition of the state address. She gave that on Tuesday night on January twelfth, and um, we. What we've done in the past few years, and we did this year, is we divided up the statements in the chat or in the speech that met the fact checkers criteria of being verifiable. Um, Lots of times those are ones that have like specific numbers, things we can check up on, and um, each of us on the team took a couple of those checks now there's a lot of claims in this um, speech, and a number of them, Governor Reynolds, we scored her an A on, um, including her um, statements about the damage caused by the August 10th derecho, um, some of the statements about the strength of the economy, particularly in Iowa, um, and you know some of the uh, the strength of um, Iowa's broadband speeds. However, I wanted the team members to um, just highlight a couple of the claims that did not get A's, um, just as a way to show that those were a little more nuanced there. Um, Michaela, I think that you were focusing on ones related to COVID-19, and do you want to talk us through that? Yeah, absolutely. So
3: at one point in her speech, uh, the governor was talking about the pandemic, which obviously has been a, a big part of the past year um, and a big part of the, con- the the condition of the state. But uh, she was specifically talking about the effort to vaccinate Americans against COVID-19. Um, right now, Iowa and other states are really working hard to uh, administer vaccines to frontline healthcare workers and other at-risk populations. Um, but specifically at one point, she said Iowa is leading the states, or excuse me, Iowa is one of the states leading the nation in administering the vaccine. So we decided to check that out. Um, And in providing sourcing to the claim, uh, the governor's office spokesman said that roughly 50% of the state's allocation of vaccines have been administered, which makes Iowa the ninth highest in the country. So taking a look at data from the U.S. Centers of Disease Control and Prevention, which has been tracking vaccine administration, it actually shows when I looked at it Wednesday afternoon that Iowa falls in 17th place for total doses administered per 100,000 residents. And to be honest with you, I only counted states. I didn't count territory such as American Samoa, which fell ahead of Iowa as well. Um, So if you count them, Iowa actually falls further down the line. So just because of that, uh, and, you know, the phrase leading the nation would make it seem as if it's maybe, you know, number one, number two, number three. I thought that this phrase wasn't accurate, so I gave it a B.
0: And then looking at the um, another claim that we had some quibbles with the governor's um, accuracy, John, um, do you want to talk us through the broadband claim?
1: Yeah, so... She said, quote, about a third of our counties are still broadband deserts where high-speed internet is rarely offered, and for many Iowans, it's just not affordable. So a spokesman for the governor's office pointed us to a 2020 map from the Office of the Chief Information Officer um, showing where broadband internet was not materially or meaningfully available. And that was going based on different census tracts. And that showed, I mean, in blue was where it was not available, is clear where it was available. And there were parts of many counties that were shaded, but in terms of the ones that were mostly not available to fit that rarely offered piece of it, um, it was only about mean twelve of the ninety-nine, so about one in eight, which does not reflect Reynolds' larger one third claim. And then if you look at it, that did not have the proportion of the population. So I mean it didn't say okay, maybe there's this big census tract, but there's only a couple people living in that one. Um so it didn't have that, but broadbandnow.com whose research has been cited by Washington Post, Yahoo, a lot of other major media outlets, and the governor's office referred to this research for another claim, they have a a county-by-county breakdown of broadband coverage. And 70% of residents had broadband coverage in 90 out of the 99 counties, which makes it seem like that one-third claim is Even more of an overstatement. Um, Now, that second part of the claim was the and for many islands, it's just not affordable. And broadbandnow.com's research agreed with that, mean showing that only eighteen and a half percent of islands have access to plans costing less than sixty dollars a month. So, while the mean first part of that and kind of the larger part of that, the I mean, high-speed internet rarely being offered in these broadband deserts was not correct. The affordability claim was correct, and that came out to be a C.
0: And, Michaela, I think you pointed out um, yesterday when we were doing this work just how the term broadband desert is a little bit um, amorphous with some different definitions.
1: Yeah, so there really isn't one consensus definition of what a broadband desert is, so that made this a little more tricky. So then I looked at what Reynolds defined it, I mean herself as in the speech, as where high speed internet is rarely offered, um, and that is, I mean, fairly close to most of the definitions people will use for broadband desert, internet desert, digital desert, kind of hear a whole mix of them.
0: Digital desert has that alliteration thing going on.
1: (laughs) It does. Good luck saying that three times fast.
0: (laughs) Um, And Marissa, you hit on the topic of justice reform. Um, Would you you explain how you came to your grade in that claim?
2: Yeah, so... um... Governor Reynolds made a claim in her address uh, that cities such as Minneapolis, Portland, and New York have embraced the attacks on law enforcement and now their violent crime rates are rising for the first time in a generation. And, you know, of course, this is in reference to kind of the push and pull between the Black Lives Matter movement, um, you know, that we, we saw kind of come into the spotlight again this past summer after the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis um, versus Blue Lives Matter and you know advocating for law enforcement. So um, the governor's office pointed to some local news articles from those cities um, and those articles did cite data from their cities uh, saying that violent crime rates did spike in these cities in 2020. But this trend um, I found after um, you know, doing some research, this trend isn't exclusive to the dozen or so cities that um, that a Forbes article says have taken up racial justice protesters' calls to defund the police or to divert funding to so- social service a- agencies, and I wanted to make that distinction, too, because, um, you know, some protesters do want outright defunding of the police. Um, other protesters say, like, you know, we still need a police force, but You know, some of the funding would be better shifted to like mental health services or other social service agencies. Um, So, a Washington Post article that that I found um, on the subject, citing FBI data, uh, showed that there was a 20.9% increase in killings nationwide in the first nine months of 2020. Um, And even in Cedar Rapids, where city leaders have not moved to defund or divest from the police force. Um, Cedar Rapids reported a rise in violent crime in 2020 as well. Um, We just did an article on that recently. Um, And the Post reported that most crime and police experts attribute the increase um, in violent crime rates in part to the pandemic, which um, that's affected local police forces by causing officers to be out sick. And it's prompted reduced contact with the public, um, like for instance, reducing traffic stops and things like that. And officials in two of the three local news articles that the governor's office provided uh, for sourcing um, articles from Minneapolis and Portland actually um, also pointed to the pandemic's economic toll and um, rising unemployment rates as contributing factors to some of this violence and, you know, maybe people just committing crimes out of desperation or, um, yeah, so that's taken a toll on people and the Cedar Rapids Police Chief. Wayne German, um, in the Gazette article on the subject, he said, um, his quote is, you know, the uncertainty and fear caused by the pandemic were added stresses. And then on top of that, you have to consider job losses, food shortages, and the loss of a sense of normal security. So, um, we gave this claim a B because it's ultimately accurate. Uh, violent crime did increase in those cities, but it needs the additional context, um, you know, it's interesting that the governor's office um, sent these these three articles and then two of them did attribute the violence largely in part to the pandemic, but um, in the governor's address, it, you know, does it doesn't really touch on that fact at all and just focuses on how these are on calls to defund the police, even though this is a trend that we're seeing nationwide.
0: You're finding there, Marissa's kind of textbook to our criteria, just in terms of what a claim that deserves a B, just missing that important context, leaving out part of the picture. Um, So, you know, with our, lots of our checks, we give like the entire check a grade, but with so many claims in the um, condition of the state team address, we do not do that. Uh, So, you know, uh, folks who are interested in reading through all of this can check it out on thegazette.com. Um, backslash fact checker site we've got all of our uh, past checks there but we're working on another one well it's actually we've i've got it completed that's that's going to run this um this weekend but it's over a statement that um the speaker of the house pat grassley made last week during a press conference um about uh um Talking about the um, with the Iowa Capital Press Association, which is a group of reporters that cover the state house, um, so they had asked um, Speaker Grassley uh, about whether he would um, require masks in the state house. Um, and his quote was several quotes: uh, "We have no way to enforce that, um, even if we were to say everyone in the caucus has to have a mask." There's no way for us to enforce that and say, sorry, you're not wearing a mask. You can't come on the floor. We don't have the ability to do that even with our own members. Um, Grassley has said that he's going to be encouraging his um, Republican colleagues and others in the House to wear masks when they can't be six feet apart. But he said, quote, there's nothing we can do to stop a member from coming on the floor of the House to take a vote, whether even if they did have a positive case, or they choose, or they chose they were not going to wear a mask. So, you know, this is responding to a question that Aaron Murphy with the Capitol Press Association had asked him, um, you know, also about whether people were going to be required to disclose whether they'd had a positive test for COVID-19. And so, you know, kind of echoing that those sentiments, uh, Senate Majority Leader Jack Whitver um, of Ankeny said the same thing. Um, about his position about members of the Iowa Senate. So, the fact checker wanted to take a look at these statements to see if there was any specific rules or laws or anything that prohibited these legislative leaders from requiring masks in the Capitol. Because, you know, we know from the CDC, um, the World Health Organization, local health officials that wearing masks slows the spread of COVID because it's the water droplets that we're expelling through our mouth and nose that can, can transmit the virus. Um, so when we asked Grassley, our normal process for the fact checker is that we asked the source of the claim um, where they got their information. And when I asked Grassley uh, why he thinks he can't enforce a mask order, his communications officer said, quote, there is nothing in the Iowa Constitution that allows the Speaker of the House the authority to strip any member of their constitutional duty based on what a representative is wearing or not wearing. So I, you know, just kind of starting with that, I went to the Iowa Constitution, and the original document was written in 1857. And, um, you know, long before we knew anything about COVID-19 or, or anything um, about probably um, these sorts of diseases, communicable diseases in this way. Um, But yeah, there's no mention to like, you can't require someone to wear masks or you can't require someone to, um, you know, even like clothing is not addressed in there, but there also doesn't seem to be anything that prohibits um, a mask order in the, in the Capitol. So the next place I went is I talked to the Iowa state patrol, because if you've ever been to the state house, all the visitors have to come through one entrance on the main floor, and there you go through a metal detector. And um, as Sergeant Alex Dinkla told me, if you have a concealed weapon, you have to show your your proof of registration for that. Um, and you know, but um, Sergeant Dinkla said the state patrol does not have any authority to require people to wear masks in the state house. He said, quote, as far as wearing a mask at the Capitol, it's in the governor's proclamation that the legislative branch, they do not have to wear masks, face coverings or masks, so those places are exempt. And what he's referring to is Governor Reynolds' November 16th proclamation, which required face coverings for people inside state government buildings when they can't be six feet apart. But this proclamation excluded buildings under control of the legislative and judicial branches. Um, so basically, the legislators, um, the, the House and the Senate are the ones that get to make the rules about what's done inside the Capitol, Sergeant Dinklow said. So um, going back to that setting of the rules, the House and the Senate do have rules for members. Um, the Senate Rules of Decorum, which is adopted in 2016, addresses everything from when you can speak, where you can stand on the Senate floor. And it also has a dress code. Um, the Senate rules of decorum prohibit jeans, t-shirts, halter tops, and shorts, and require men to wear a coat and tie when the Senate is in session. Um, so the Senate Sergeant at Arms enforces the dress code. And as the Gazette's, um, longtime Statehouse reporter, Rod Beauchart told us, they even keep a, a rack of spare coats and ties near the Senate entrance in case someone forgets their own, um. So, you know, they do have rules about what you can and can't wear um, when you go when you're in the Senate. So the House of Representatives adopted its own rules, um, the most recent ones in 2019, and they forbid jeans of any color without leave of the speaker. So no blue jeans, red jeans, green jeans, other colors. You know, I thought that was interesting. They noted that. So. I was curious about, you know, whether these rules would be easy to amend or challenging or whether it would take like a um, a, a law or, or something like that. But it says within the rules that if lawmakers want to amend the House rules, um, perhaps to include masks or other face coverings, it just says a motion to change or rescind a standing rule or order in the House requires one day's notice. So. I concluded um, that, you know, Grassley says he can't enforce this mask order, but he and his Republican colleagues who control the House and Senate are the only ones who can enforce it, according to this proclamation from the governor. Um, And, you know, when he says the Constitution doesn't allow him to prohibit members from exercising their right to vote, that's true, but that doesn't have anything to do with this with, with a mask order, because they do have rules saying you can't come onto the Senate floor, for example, if you aren't wearing a sport coat. Um, so I, I don't see how there's, there's any difference uh, between that and a mask. Um, and in fact, the mask issue is, is quite a bit more serious. Um, so I concluded that um, legislative leaders can enforce a mask order, but they are choosing, just choosing not to. So in this case, I gave Grassley an F. So um people who've read the fact checker know that we don't give Fs very often um and I want to make sure the rest of the team um is on board with this and hear if there's any other points that you'd like to bring up.
3: You know, I thought this fact check was pretty straightforward Aaron. You know, you laid out everything that could apply here and I thought, you know, the conclusion you came to made sense. Um it was interesting to me that they pointed to the constitution. Um, you know, that nothing allows it, you know, the, the Speaker of the House, the authority to uh, kind of dictate what representatives are wearing. But like you said, there's there's nothing in the Constitution that lays it out. So it's interesting to me that they pointed to that, even though there's nothing within that document that talks about, you know, coverings or garb or or anything of that sort. Um, so I would agree with your conclusion that th- they're choosing not to enforce it for whatever reason.
1: Yeah, I agree as well. I mean, as you said, Aaron, it's not very often that we give F's, but this seems to be, I mean, pretty straightforward how, I mean, they say that, hey, we can't enforce this. And turns out, actually, they can. So um, I think that, I mean, we don't give many of them, but definitely see this one as worthy of the F grade.
3: And I feel like this whole thought that, you know, we can't force them, enforce a mask mandate has been pretty common throughout this pandemic. You know, Governor Reynolds for a long time really resisted issuing mask mandates because, you know, she said they weren't practical to enforce. And I, I don't know, it's just interesting to me because we've seen other states pretty effectively enforce mask mandates. And, even just looking specifically to one building or one area. I mean, anybody who went to a school with a dress code knows that it's, it's pretty easy to enforce dress codes. And I think the longstanding rules of dress code in the legislative building kind of proves that too. Right.
2: Yeah. And I mean, the U S house too, you know, they implemented rules for, um, like remote voting and things of that nature. So there's things, you know, even at the federal level that our legislative bodies are doing to try to mitigate the spread of COVID-19, you know, among those lawmakers. So, um, you know, if the U.S. House can do it, you would think that the Iowa House would also be able to do it. And I don't know, it just seems odd that the, um, the branch of government that, you know, creates laws and, passes laws, like, doesn't, um, you know, doesn't see how they can enforce a mask mandate. Um, But, I mean, just looking within Iowa and the, you know, the cities that have adopted mask mandates, they're, they're not even necessarily focused on, you know, they're not trying to throw anyone in jail who isn't wearing a mask, but they really see it as an opportunity to raise public awareness and, you know, kind of have an education campaign to, um, you know, just try to get more people to wear masks. And, um, at least anecdotally, um, cities seem to have accomplished that. Um, you know, there's more signage in stores saying that you really need to be wearing a mask if you're going to come in here and, um, you know, the little kiosks in stores providing masks if you forget your own when you get there. So, um, I mean, maybe you can't stop someone from coming to vote on the floor, but at the very least, you can, um, you know, encourage people to, to do it. So that way, um, all lawmakers and their staff feel safe.
0: You know, I think that's a really good point, Marissa, um, is is the kind of the peer pressure factor, you know, so say you, uh, you know, you say that you're going to enforce a mask order, you don't really have maybe the authority to, like, kick someone off out of the building, you know, or, or kick someone out of, off the Senate floor if they're not wearing a mask. But you probably also don't if they're not wearing a sport coat and tie. But yet, you know, there's that, that idea that these are your colleagues and these are your peers and you want to follow the rules that have been established by the group. I mean, sometimes I go into a store that is supposed to have a mask order and there'll be someone not wearing a mask. And I'm guessing that's just because employees don't want to run down the aisle and like, you know, strap a mask to their face, you know, that kind of thing. But, um, you know, it's still if you've got 95 percent of the people in the store or more wearing the mask, you know, I think those sorts of orders do have an impact.
1: And going back to that point, too, Marissa, that you are making about the federal level, um, yesterday, the Speaker of the U.S. House, Nancy Pelosi, is saying that next week they want to um, vote on a rule change mandating fines for members who don't or who refuse to follow the mask-wearing protocol of $5,000 for the first offense, 10000 for the second to be deducted from lawmakers' salaries. So we are really seeing this exact thing happen at the federal level.
3: It'd be interesting if the argument, you know, I think it would change the conversation to me, maybe kind of to Marissa's point, if enough people say, no, I'm not going to wear a mask and get kicked off the floor, are they worried that that would stop the legislative process, that there wouldn't be enough people willing to wear the mask and, you know, go to debates, go to committee meetings, but that's not really the point they're making. Um, you know, because that that has been successfully enforced elsewhere. So I'm just interested if maybe there's been enough pressure from lawmakers that they wouldn't
0: participate in this process if they were forced to wear a mask. Well, and then um, it might be worth noting in the check itself, just some of the um, procedures that have been allowed at the federal level, like the remote voting. So if someone felt very strongly that they didn't want to wear a mask, you know, maybe they could remote, they could vote remotely or something. They wouldn't have to at home. They could just stay home. Right. Do you guys think I should put some of that context in the fact check? I think that would be good context to include. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think that'd help.
0: Okay. Marissa, I know you sent some of that, so I'll I'll pull from that and get that in there as well. And Marissa, I didn't, I think, I. are you okay with the F grade?
2: Yeah, I agree with it.
0: Okay. All right, great. So I appreciate our, our conversation there. Now, with the start of the legislative session this week, um, we've been talking uh, among our team just about wanting to check as many statements as we can um, made at the at the Capitol. Um, of course, none of us are covering those proceedings on a daily basis. And we do have reporters who are there who try to keep their ears open for us. But if any of our listeners um, hear of statements made um, in the Iowa legislature or um, by Iowa's elected officials in Congress, please let us know. You can um, write to the Gazette at uh, uh, factchecker at thegazette.com and, um, you know, suggest your ideas for future fact checks. John, I believe that you're going to be heading on a check for next week. Do you want to tell us about it?
1: Yes, I am. So it will be from that same press conference um, through the Iowa Capitol um, Press Association. And Governor Reynolds was making a claim about schools and transmission of COVID-19 in them. So um, here is what she said. Quote, we have so many examples across the state of school districts They've been in session the entire time, and they've done it in a safe and responsible manner. And they have excellent data where they can demonstrate that the spread is not happening in the classroom. And then she goes on to later say, by and large, the majority is happening outside the classroom. So that gives a, and it also is very timely because one of the things that she's talking about in the condition of the state address was a law requiring all school districts to provide a in-person option. So we will be checking that next week.
0: Yeah, that'll be interesting. Um, So I know there's a lot of different data out there.
1: And I know it's something too that probably readers have strong opinions on.
0: Right, right. I was curious whether the examples um, you know that Governor Reynolds has what size of school districts she's talking about, you know um it, and maybe they do range large and small, but hopefully her office will provide us the sourcing on that and make it easy,
1: yeah, fingers crossed,
0: yeah, well, I think that's all we've got for today. um the fact checker is edited by Craig Jamolis. Our podcast is produced by Stephen Colbert, and our music is is lobby time by Kevin McLeod. Um, I'm Erin Jordan. I'm Michaela Ram.
1: I'm John Steppy. I'm Marissa Payne.
0: And until next time, we'll fact check you later.